This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at MedEdMedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler, here with me in the studio. It's new co-host, M1 Jacob Hansen. Hello. <laughs> uh, hi there, M4 Abby Fife. Hi. Sup, M4 Maddie Walleen. Not quite. M3. Don't embarrass me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't embarrass me, Maddie. Just say, hey. Just Hey, pretend. guys. <laughs> no, thank you for correcting me. And joining us from the internet, it's M4 Emma Barr. Hello. I uh, want to start off by saying thank you to Trisha from South Carolina, who posted on Instagram saying that she enjoys listening to us during her commute to school. Thanks, Trisha. I've uh, dropped a token of our thanks in the email, and I'm so happy you like the show. If you want to do the same, listeners, just post your thoughts on the show or about an episode or whatever we talked about and tag the short code. I'll send you something too. help us spread the word. Uh, I can't afford to advertise or do anything crazy like that. So you'd be helping me out. You'd be doing me a solid. I'll do you a solid. Jacob. Yes. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm glad I, to be here. You're, as I said, you're co-hosting for the first time. So I'm gonna put you on the spot. All right. When did you first realize you wanted to be a doctor? Yeah. So I've wanted to be a doctor ever since I, I saw a dermatologist for the first time. I was in uh, first grade. I was plagued with these warts all over my face and my arms. And prior to this, I only thought that like doctors just gave me shots and made me feel bad. But, <laughs> but it which was, is true. Which, but, you know, yeah. they still did. But uh, this time it was different because I, I realized that not only are they like treating like these physical diseases, but they're also able to help me emotionally and socially and mentally as well. And so I really appreciated that. And I, that's something that I wanted to do is make these kind of really large, like global differences in uh, the lives of my like patients and communities. Awesome. Yeah. What didn't you know about medical school before you got here? And how did you, how did you figure it out? Yeah. One thing I didn't realize is that unlike an undergrad, medical school is very variable. Like every day it will look a very, like will look very different. Uh, and I first down, realized this when I downloaded my class schedule and it was like 20 some pages long. And I'm like, oh, I have to actually like be on top of this. What's awesome about that? And this is, this is my old man moment. Yeah. We used to give those syllabi on paper and they were, they came in three inch binders. Oh my goodness. <laughs> which I was always shocked at. I'm like, that's the, that's what you're calling the syllabus. All right. How did your first semester go? Yeah, my first semester was about like what I expected to be. Definitely challenging, but also a very interesting and very fun. One thing that I really liked about it is maybe is because people haven't seen each other in person a whole lot recently, but just like the atmosphere here at Carver is very inviting. Everyone's so friendly here and just making these new great friends that come from all different walks of life has been definitely a highlight for me this last semester that's great i'm glad to hear it sounds like you've uh, found your people i would say so yeah. yeah which can be difficult sometimes especially when we're doing weird things like having remote classes and things like that but yeah good i'm glad to hear it uh, i'm glad you've joined us for the show we got a listener question from riley hi good morning Turco. my name is 
Riley Johnson. I'm recently graduated in April. I'm a biochemist. Had an unconventional way of getting through school. Actually dropped out the 10th grade of high school first month in there. Didn't have much of an education. Uh, picked up a trade. I actually loved FFA and took up welding. Run my own welding contracting company and, you know, it's got me through. I'm applying this next cycle and I'm seated to take the MCAT April 9th. It's a, it's a fun trip and I'm just looking for, for wisdom on a not sure going in. I ended up finishing an undergrad with like 3.0 GPA, all the cool stuff. Upward trend right in the start, and then the world shut down, and, well, that is reflected on my transcript. There's a lot of cool stuff going on in the world, but I want to get some wisdom for, hey, just as a young adult going through the gap year. Obviously, we have the simple things like get shadowing experience, get clinical experience wherever you can, but what were some of the things that helped you guys grow as, as student doctors in this time period that were high yield to you guys? And what advice would you have for some crazy cuss who looks bad on paper without doing a post back or anything like that to try to get on into medical school? I'm just calling actually shaking hands, which is frowned upon these days. So, yeah. so thanks for running the show. You guys have a great show. Bye-bye. Thank you, Riley. Uh, yeah, so Riley has a common story. His GPA is imperfect. His trajectory didn't exactly improve in the time of COVID. And so we get this question a lot from listeners on the show who are concerned about whether or not they'll be able to get in. But interestingly, that's not what he actually asked. His question isn't so much the usual, can I still get in or how do I fix it or, or anything like that. It's more, the, the question he asks is more, how can I grow at this moment in time? And I just really like how you put that. What can I do to grow? It sort of shows a mindset that I think is admirable, number one, and also one that will resonate with anyone down the road looking at your application. So good on you for putting it that way and sort of having that in your mind as what you want to do. You want to grow. So you mentioned shadowing. It's the obvious thing people do. And remember that shadowing, my personal feeling on this is remember that shadowing isn't just with physicians, but it can be with any healthcare provider. Probably should be with any healthcare provider because it helps you answer the question you're going to get, which is why do you want to be an MD instead of X, Y, or Z. So keep that in mind. Now let's deal with the actual question. What are some things that you guys did that helped you grow? I think some of the things that have actually helped me in a really surprising way to grow as a almost physician is actually stuff like completely unrelated to medicine. But I found like engaging in like humanities activities and things to be really helpful and like actually is one of my bigger regrets is if I could go back and be an undergrad again I would not like choose a science major I would have majored in like sociology or psychology or maybe even English and then just done my prereqs um on the theory that you're gonna get all that you're gonna get all that other stuff yeah on the theory that yeah and also like I did not enjoy like physical chemistry and some of the like really niche chemistry stuff I took as a biochem major and the knowledge that you you are going to get if you get your required prereqs you are going to get all the science information your heart desires and needs and like you're going to have that education but I especially in med school I just found sociology and like why are humans behaving the way they're behaving to be so interesting and also incredibly important mm-hmm. because I think so much of what we deal with in medicine is 
health conditions that are either caused by a behavior or require a change of behavior in order to treat. And if you're going to effectively treat either of those two groups of conditions, which is like a huge amount of things you're going to be treating, like you're going to have to know how to help patients change yeah, they, their behavior. What's the number? Like two thirds of, of illness is mediated by societal and personal societal factors and personal behaviors and things like that. Uh And even if the illness itself is purely like biologically driven, it's most likely still going to require some form of a behavior change to treat. Mm -hmm. And like that behavior might be just as small as like, now you have to take a pill every night. But for some patients, that's a hard change to make. And I, so I just think like engaging in some of the more, like the softer sciences, if you will, or whatever you want to call them. I think I would have appreciated that as a human, but I do also think it would have been useful to my medical career. And so that is my advice to Riley is to pursue something in that realm. What about you, Maddie? Yeah, I really agree. I think that med schools are looking for well-rounded applicants Mm -hmm. and people who, you know, there's a lot of people in medicine, most people in medicine, I would say, have like really strong science backgrounds Mm -hmm. and that doesn't do a lot for breeding diversity and getting a lot of new ideas. And like when you have a bunch of people who come from a similar background, I feel like that's just not where new things thrive. And I think med schools now are looking to invite a lot more people with different experiences into their programs. So I think you already have that going for you as somebody who was in a trade and who has a a non-traditional coming to medicine. So I think that's already something that is, you know, in your favor. But I totally agree with Abby that in the meantime, I didn't do a gap year, but if I would have had a gap year, I think I would have wanted to do something that was like more passion of mine. I always Mm -hmm. like, oh, I should have been an EMT or something, but I don't know that would have necessarily made me a better doctor. I think getting involved in some volunteering that I'm really passionate about. Since I've been in medical school, I started volunteering with the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition, and I would love to give more time to something like that. And I feel like med schools require, um, they have a hunger for people who show that they're committed to something, whether that be in medicine or something else. So I think just anything that you are passionate about and can stick to for your gap year, I think that's going to be really uh, valuable to med schools. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts, Jacob? Yeah, I wanted to echo a lot of what has already been said on the like idea of growth. One thing that I've done a lot of thinking about this last semester was the idea that like when people ask like what I do, I typically say like, you know, I'm a student because that's what I am, but that's not all that I am. And so one thing that I've really come to think about this last couple of months is that I'm also a human being too. And so while I might spend, you know, most of my days being a student, these hard sciences type of things, that's not the, that's not all of who I am. And so one thing that I realized, especially during these, like uh, these more challenging COVID times is going back to what I enjoy doing kind of like is what already been said. Uh, so one thing that I discovered right at the beginning of um, undergrad that I was like neglecting pretty bad was like my my more artsy or like my more right side of my brain got more in touch with like I big into photography. So that's what I did. And then when things were changing due to the pandemic and stuff, I tried to combine a way to use that my interest and my passions in like a more constructive way in like the show that like I'm not just standing stagnant, you know, I'm trying to always 
better myself and try to use, look at the world in a new way or try to solve problems in a new way. So for example, I was making like these thank you videos with like different organizations, like thanking the healthcare workers, thanking the essential workers, things like that. So just trying to figure out what you enjoy and how you can also tie that into these other problems that you'll be facing down the road, I think was something that really helped me out, not just become like a more well-rounded individual, but it's something that I enjoyed and it's something that I look forward to, to help break up like the monotony of the, what we do day in and day out. And then it's something you can talk about too. Like when you put it on your application, I think it's really important to be able to convey to whoever's interviewing you that you actually cared about something. And that's a lot easier to do when you're doing something that you enjoy. It's just a lot easier to come up with things to say about it versus why did you, what do you, what did you enjoy so much about shadowing? Well, I shadowed because I, it, I, I, I was to. expected to shadow, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I think, go ahead, Emma. Yeah, I totally agree with everything that's been said. I think interacting more with the humanities and your hobbies is super important, but practically, like I took two year, two gap years, practically like you have to make money and you have to pay rent. And so those things may be harder to make money off of if you only have one or two years. Um, so what I did was I worked in a several different like healthcare settings. I'd worked as a CNA during college and then I worked as a scribe. And then when the scribes, we got rid of the scribes, I worked at a front desk of a medical clinic. And I think those experiences also really made me grow because it made me see different aspects of healthcare. And I have so much respect for CNAs now. Like they do such hard work and people sitting at a front desk at an office. Like you can't, you wouldn't imagine how angry sometimes patients come <laughs> into the clinic. And then as a scribe, you can see like different styles of practice and, you know, you may really value this one provider's professionalism and this one other provider's compassion. And so you can pick up things that you may want to incorporate into your own practice. So I think getting healthcare experience is also helpful, especially if you can get different aspects and see different viewpoints and other and seeing what people, your team members are going through every day. I posed this question to uh, Megan, one of our admissions folks and she said i think some of what you guys are saying but she also said try to find an activity that takes you out of your comfort zone because that's where you're going to do your that's where that's when you're going to really grow she didn't really provide any specifics other than um immersive experiences like going abroad a little difficult right now. Yeah. As poor Abby can attest. But you did do for people who, you know, maybe that this idea is a few years out. It's also worth talking about because Ab- you've you've done it. Abby, you went you've got been abroad. I have. Um, yes. During your medical school, school yeah. career and before or no? Uh, I mean, not for as long, just kind of. Sure went abroad a lot. Okay, so you traveled. I traveled a lot, but I did a global... I mean, travel is a mind-broadening experience. Yeah. Yeah, I did a global health experience after my M1 year in Jerusalem, working Mm -hmm. in a Palestinian NICU, which we could talk about for ages. We've talked about it on the show before. (laughs) We have. We Uh, have indeed. In the distant past, but I'll try to remember to link to that in the show notes. Um, And I'm supposed to be... I, I was supposed to be in Jerusalem at the current moment, but... COVID ruins all good plans. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing is safe from COVID these days, we have found. And so Israel closed their borders. And so I couldn't get to where I wanted to be. And then just last week, they reopened them all of a sudden randomly. But it was too late to resurrect yeah. my plans. So I'm here. What did you, what personally, how did you grow? 
personally, how did I grow? Wow, that's a big question. (laughs) Yeah, Dave is a a big question asker. I think it's hard to like say it in just a few sentences. So I'm going to do my best here. But I think one of the areas I grew is just I really learned a lot about what it is like to be an outsider in a situation. I'm used to being around people who look like me and who have had very similar experiences to me, but going to somewhere where uh, I'm working with people who are all, I think like probably 90 to 95% of the people I were working was working with were Muslim. So like females were all like dressing very differently than me, covering their hair and like different color skin, different cultural attributes. It was still just like very eye-opening and that that is something that I grew a lot from. I think one of Megan's suggestions was in particular volunteering with different populations yeah. than the one that you belong to. Yeah. Whether it's yeah. Under, you know, underserved and re- underrepresented mm-hmm. um, populations can bring you a lot of knowledge. Yeah, I was just going to say, I also did a global health with quotes somewhere after my first year, and I spent it in Eastern Washington State. And the community that I was in was like 99% Latino and 98% like only Spanish speaking. And so even though I was in the US near an area where I grew up, I still felt, I think, maybe similar to what Abby felt. Yeah, absolutely. A good point that you don't have to necessarily, especially COVID, it's not super possible to travel far. But it is possible to go places that are close to you where you will have that experience of. Look around you. There there are opportunities. If you're a man, volunteer at the Emma Goldman Clinic in your city if there is one. Volunteer with a harm reduction organization Mm -hmm. like Maddie did. These are opportunities to see things differently than you see them now. And don't be too precious about your values either. Just do it keep an open mind when you're interacting with people and maybe maybe your perception will broaden a little bit i'd love to hear more about riley's journey yeah like i'm having trouble envisioning the the trajectory between dropping out of 10th grade welding business college and grad school he did say grad school no No, he said undergrad undergrad just undergrad i i I guess it's not that unusual but i but i uh I love hearing stories of people who like, I, I especially like um, hearing about people who uh, went to trade school or went, you know, did a trade, mm-hmm. especially because part of me thinks that I should not have gone to college because I was not very good at it. <laughs> Maybe if I had done what Riley did and been like, okay, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do a trade for a while. And then I went to college, you know, that would be, that would have been better. But yeah, no, I wasn't very good at it. Or rather I was, I was better at some things that college isn't supposed to be about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I agree. I think uh, our culture pushes high school to college a lot, but I think that a lot of people may benefit from taking some time to figure out what they want to do before seeking that higher education. Mm -hmm. Well, that may be a current trend that's going on right now. I was, uh, you know, seeing a, I was reading an article about the decline in people going to college. Yeah. And out of curiosity, I, you know, went to, went to, uh, Google Trends and entered college and trade school to compare those, you know, those searches. And uh, they are exactly opposite. So the interesting search, you know, the searching for colleges has gone down and the searching for trade schools has gone up. And I wonder if, yeah, I wonder how that's going to play out in the long term. Colleges are, of course, very panicky about it. Yeah, my brother, my brother just recently 
finished his uh, electrician program. So he's mm-hmm. working as an electrician mm-hmm. out in Idaho right now and he loves it. Yeah. Awesome. And like, I mean, we, we mentioned it's totally okay to delay going to college, but it's also okay to just like, just go to trade school. There's nothing yeah. magical about it. Yeah. There's this narrative though, that like you'll make more money if you go to college or you'll have more upward yeah. mobility if you go to college. Okay. I'm sure the data supports that, but ain't nothing wrong with, you know, I, I, I don't have know called... if the data does support that. I think you can make a lot of money in the trades, like as a plumber or. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and especially I mean, to the, oh, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, especially like that point, I don't remember the exact number, but there's a point where it's no matter how much more money you make above this threshold, like your happiness is the same. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like, why spare yourself like the four-ish, maybe more years and all the headache and stuff if you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And don't get enough credit because like we glorify going to college and the jobs you get after college, but we just had to have a plumber come to my, I live in an old house I rent and there was like sewage coming up out of the basement. I had this problem last week too. Yeah. And I'm like, what would we have done without that plumber? Do you think I have any idea how to fix this problem? Because the answer is no, I am completely useless. I feel like we should have learned some of these practical things in high school. Like these are things that all of us could find useful. Yes. How the world actually works would be (laughs) great to know. Spend time memorizing presidents and dates and historical (laughs) things when we could have been learning how to take care of a toilet. Yeah. (laughs) It's totally true. Totally true. I've had at least three different trades in my house this past week for various reasons. And while it will prove to be expensive, I will have a home that I can live in and I will be grateful for those people and their help. What are the only two toilet papers that we're supposed to use? <laughs> uh, uh, no. It's like Absolutely Angel Soft not. and what's the Angel, other one? Angel Soft and Scott. Scott. Those are the only two acceptable toilet papers my plumber endorsed, endorsed and will recommend. Man, my family had to get Scott. I threw away all of the toilet paper in my house oh, wow. after I had that guy come in. Wow. After I had that man come in to, to clear my what? drains. Okay. What's wrong with Kirkland? I am very passionate. He says about it's trash. <laughs> okay, so his his well, it is toilet paper. His 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 uh his tests indicate that it does not break up in your sewer line. So if it does get caught, it's gonna be there essentially until you call him <laughs> to get it out. And yeah. I'm a believer All at right. this point. Okay, but during the initial pandemic, when there was no toilet paper available, my family had to get Scott's instead. We usually are we're in Cottonelle family. Oh, that's the worst one. <laughs> I know. And Scott's toilet paper. My mom is still traumatized by this Scott's toilet paper. I'm still traumatized by how it's, terrible this toilet paper It's not paper exactly. Is. Yeah. It's not a comfortable experience. Angel soft. I, I could go Angel for AngelSoft, Angel probably. Call me, me AngelSoft. Okay. <laughs> Great sponsor for the Short Code Podcast. Yes, <laughs> let's get Soft. it. I mean, that's what we need more of is toilet paper sponsors. <laughs> Riley, Riley, good luck on your journey. I'd love to hear more about, about how things go and your continued uh, success in this area. Best of luck. Listeners, if you ask us a question, it means that I don't have to make something up to talk about on the show. And the show becomes what you want it to be. So send your questions to the shortcodes at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. Back in September, we talked with Dr. Amy Perlman, a urologist and men's health specialist here at Iowa. 
And I'll post a link to that show. I did post a video on our YouTube channel of that conversation. And some some men have been expressing their concerns about seeing a woman urologist there. And I'd like to hear your responses to uh, to some of these comments. So we'll start with this one. One person commented, too embarrassing to go to a female urologist. Wonder how many men in the same situation are unable through embarrassment of their bodies, afraid to seek medical treatment. Please address this issue if possible. Happy to do that. What do you guys think about this about this problem? I think it's a valid concern. Like, I think you have the right to choose what kind of provider you want to see based on your level of comfort. I think that's a common sentiment that we hear about with like women and male gynecologists is that the women are uncomfortable receiving care from a male gynecologist. However, I think that a lot of those issues you're going to are going to come up in other specialties too. like in primary care, you're going to talk about sexual dysfunction. You're going to talk about sensitive issues and in specialties like that where you're going to encounter men and women as your physicians. So I think that it's not unique to urology, Mm -hmm. but I like I definitely understand the. Yeah. So so the problem I have with this specific comment is not. So they first talk about like I'm too embarrassed. I would be too embarrassed to see a female urologist, which is, I think. I, I get that I, and I, I understand that sentiment of I would rather see a female gynecologist personally but then I don't like that second half of the comment where I was like wondering about how many men are too embarrassed to seek care as if the existence of a female urologist treating men's health is like a barrier to all men seeking urology care or kind of like implying that the fact that she's a urologist means that like men can't seek any care from like UIHC urology or something. At least that's how I was hearing that. And that's what kind of bothered me about the comment is that it's like, that's a completely separate issue. Like, are you embarrassed receiving like care for a female? Are you embarrassed receiving all medical urology care? Well, it's worth thinking about because I think among the problems that people have in seeking care, especially, of of course, men Mm -hmm. have this idea that or may have this idea that uh, seeking help for my problems mm-hmm. is a weakness mm-hmm. in yeah. some way. You know, th- that's unfortunate because you're going to need to establish a relationship with a medical provider mm-hmm. in order for you to stay healthy as long as you can until you're a cranky old man yeah. like me. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, and yeah the- I I have an issue with calling this a problem at all because mm-hmm. isn't urology like a male dominated specialty? Yeah. So if you don't want to see a female urologist, go to a male. Yeah. <laughs> so why is this person concerned about the number of people who don't want to see a female urologist? There's far fewer of them. Well, I think it, if you go back and listen to the video, I think, or listen to the show episode, Amy spent a lot of time. We, we spent some time talking about what it's like to be a female mm-hmm. uh, urologist in an A, male dominated specialty and B, a specialty that seems mostly interested in catering to men's. Yeah urogenital tract mm-hmm. that's probably what this person was yeah. reacting to i guess yeah. i just didn't really take the comment as seeing it as a problem i guess i just took the comment as i don't think i would want to see a female urologist yeah being fair a man. enough yeah and i think that's perfectly valid yeah 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 i think i i like the first half of the comment i took that the second half is what kind of made me was like wondering how many men are like too embarrassed to seek 
care. And that was where I was kind of like, are you saying that there are men who just like shouldn't go at all to see any of the urologists at the UIHC because there's one female? But we don't know what this person intended. Like maybe they weren't totally intending it how Maddie was seeing it. And uh, Emma and I are like reading into it more than we should. I don't know. Uh, Another person would never see a female about an intimate male issue. While I'm sure she could learn about the physical, there's absolutely no way on earth she could ever begin to understand all the psychological, ego, and self-esteem issues behind discussing, looking at, touching, rectal exam, erectile dysfunction, male issues, discussing this stuff with an attractive younger female. Simply no way she could understand about a man's sense of masculinity, how men view themselves, how we feel, the crushing societal pressures and expectations. Oof. Wow. Yeah, that was that, a lot. That is a yeah. comment. I think that while a doctor is never going, like in any field anywhere, you're never going to only encounter things that you easily can understand. And this kind of goes back to what we were just saying about trying to gain experiences to broaden your mm-hmm. understanding, to like increase your ability to empathize. But like even no matter how much of that you do, like those experiences only go so far. There's only so much you can understand. And there isn't a field where you like are only like where you're going to be shielded from that. And I'm sure that this commenter has even had to talk to their doctor about other problems that doctor like probably can't personally identify with, but that doesn't mean they can't empathize and they can't treat them. But I, I think some of the content of that comment about like crushing societal weight and so that just it makes me sad that it feels like this person actually might need some mental health care that as much as a urologist should be providing empathy and social support and things like there's only so much they can do to help in in just the way the structure of the appointment works so there's just let's think about mm-hmm. let's spend a minute thinking about what a urologist or any physician can do to to offer their patients some security and some, I I don't know, some sense of security that seeing somebody different from them Mm -hmm. is okay. Is there, can you, how how would you approach a patient, I guess, is what I'm asking, who who happens to say to you, I don't really feel comfortable seeing you, but I'm going to see you. Mm -hmm. What would you, what might you say to that person, do you think? I guess I'd want to like, like, why, like, ask like more into like, why don't you feel comfortable and like, what, what don't you think I understand? Just like trying to hear from them and trying to learn that experience that they've had that I haven't. That is, um, like, causing that disconnect and also just trying to provide some assurance that like, I may, I'm probably not going to be able to understand. But I will do my very best to empathize and to not let that lack of understanding like impair the care I provide and that I hope that they will tell me if, hey, you're way off on this assumption or something that I I welcome that feedback. Well, I think about this question in a like a not necessarily just say you're at the urology clinic, Mm -hmm. but say you're at like a primary care clinic. There's no way that the physician or whoever's there, the practitioner, has seen every single case that's walked through that door, but yet they're still able to treat them Mm -hmm. just because they've never experienced this one condition. Doesn't mean there's, you know, I think sometimes people forget that they're, you know, they're still experts in this field. And even though they might not have the exact same experiences with you, 
they've studied it just as much as their colleagues that might come from a different little different place and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And that's something to, you know, reminder just globally, you know, in medicine and you're not going to have everything be perfect, but they're still experts and they're still able to help in these situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like even though I may not have experienced it, the specific urolog- urologic condition that they have, if it's painful, I've experienced pain before. Maybe it's not the exact same kind of pain, but I've experienced pain before and I may be able to empathize in that way. But going back to what Abby was saying, I think also when talking to them, like offering, saying something like, if I'm not understanding something and if you think I'm not understanding, maybe I can consult a colleague or maybe like even saying that they can see someone else. Mm-hmm. They're welcome yeah. to see someone else. It won't hurt my feelings. You won't burn any bridges. And and this other per- and I could even refer you to somebody or find someone who I think you might fit better with. Mm-hmm. So just giving them options too. Yeah, I, I think also maybe just explaining to them that a good doctor spends a lot of energy and effort on understanding and empathizing and being and being a sensitive to the needs of my patient, even in non-medical, even when in areas that you might consider non-medical that. And so that is my goal always when seeing patients and when treating patients. I think that might go some way towards reassuring somebody that you understand and and that it's a lifelong process. There will always be situations that I need to learn more about. And that is how my life works. I'm going to continue learning about things through your help. We are partners. Another comment that I found interesting Urologists need to set up their offices like mammogram clinics where men can be seen to by men. There are no males involved in these clinics. Women hate to go, but still go because they are treated by women. As a male, I would like to be treated by a man and with the aid of a male nurse. Um, I, don't actually, I mean, I can see how that might be true. Mm-hmm. I think that might be an accident of... Yeah, I, don't, I was like, is that true? I feel like... I don't really know. About, if it is true, it's perhaps an accident of the kinds of gender roles that exist in medicine. Yeah. Um, there are more female nurses, uh, yeah. I think, than there are male nurses, for instance. But I don't know. Uh, yeah, I would say, I mean, I, I under, definitely understand that desire. I just... I, I doubt that there are enough male nurses to make that a reality. Yeah. And I feel like, I don't know, I don't, there are so many urological conditions that can happen to men and women. I think that the common urological issues that we might think about, like sexual dysfunction or urinary dysfunction, seem more like male problems. But I think that having women in urology is really important because there are, everybody has a urinal genital system, every single person. So there's a urologist out there for everybody. And I think that you as a patient should see somebody who you're more comfortable seeing because that can be a really big barrier in a patient doctor relationship if you're not comfortable with whoever's seeing you and that's really important and you need to do that for yourself but like some of these comments and i think what we might be getting in the room is like women shouldn't you know there isn't a place for women in urology when i think that's just like fundamentally not true because there's a lot of diseases that women are going to have to see a urologist and they may be more comfortable seeing a female urologist for example Also, that was a tangent, but yeah, also, I mean, I think there's an assumption that women can't be embarrassed in the same way as men about urogenital 
conditions. Yeah, that's a good mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Simply because they don't have, you know, the same dangly bits that men do. When in fact, that's not at all the case. There's plenty of conditions that women, unfortunately, I think find embarrassing to talk about with their urolo- with their gynecologists. Mm-hmm. You know, things, th- I mean, maybe you can help me think of some, but, or what they would be yeah. called off the top of my head. I'm having trouble. <laughs> I, I did a month of urogynecology, which is a combination of gynecology and urology. And I think there was far fewer, like barely any patients who didn't say they were embarrassed to talk about what we were about to talk about. Like they were embarrassed to talk about their like stooling habits and urinating and using pads and like all these things they didn't want to tell me. And I was like, no, it's okay. This is what I'm talking about all day. This is what you're here for. Make me uncomfortable at all. And so you really have to encourage them. So I don't think this is like a male issue at all. And and women have, women have problems achieving orgasm. They have problems with infections. They have all the same. urinary dysfunction after pregnancy. Yeah, that's such a good point. Going to the doctor is very vulnerable. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what specialty you're in. There's a lot of really sensitive medical issues. So I think that's what it comes down to is remembering yeah. the vulnerability that your patients are showing just by coming to you. Right. And then displaying that you understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like, when do people go see a physician? They're not seeing them when things are going well. They're going right. to see them typically at a lower point in their life right. and just remembering yeah. that. Yeah, this is actually really good to think about. It's not just, it's not specific to these really sensitive specialties Mm -hmm. like urology and gynecology and Mm -hmm. anybody coming to see a doctor is really trusting you. So I think it's important to... Well, if we can mind Jacob's life, you you mentioned that when (laughs) you were a little kid, you had this problem. What was the... the Do you want to talk about the diagnosis? Oh, yeah. I have no issue talking about it. So it was called molluscum. Basically, I was... Oh, yeah. I I know that from being a parent. (laughs) So basically, for those of you who aren't familiar, congratulations, but I was covered in like warts, like on my face. And as a first grader, being covered in a highly visible thing, and when people are afraid of cooties, this is very detrimental. (laughs) You know, it's very challenging. It was very challenging to make friends. It was very challenging to be included in things. Definitely being an outsider with that was very hard and so uh when i saw you know when i received care it was it was incredible having this experience you know not just being treated for like my skin but also you know being treated like mentally and like emotionally and socially again it is being seen as like this whole human being being bettered in all these facets of life was just like just unbelievable and i i was very thankful and i thought about this quite a you know quite a bit since making my decision to enter medicine that one moment Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. I like this commenter who objected to the ubiquitous models and posters of male reproductive organs all over the place, saying that in the event something needs to be explained, they could just be brought out. They don't have to be every freaking where in the doctor's office so maybe in the meantime just keep them in the closet or something i don't need to be seen everywhere on my during my appointment what do we think of this i think that's a really great point that is actually super able to be extrapolated to way more than urology yeah i think we i have never been in a doctor's office that didn't feature a large poster 
that could be considered kind of gross. Yeah. Well, uh, even, by your average person, you know. Like, even beyond the gross posters, I think we spend very little thinking about what can we do to make this experience less negative. And I think thinking about what kind of like, could we arrange the clinic room differently? Could we put some art on the wall instead of a gross medical poster? What could we do to make this less of a, a thing? And I think in pediatrics, that's actually something that is super common and still done very imperfectly. But I mean, if you think about it, the ch- children's hospitals are always like designed very thoughtfully and like with art and how can we make this a less traumatic experience? And I just think that doesn't get translated well into the adult world in any sense of like, it's like suddenly you turn 18 and you're no longer yeah, you're allowed to be... to be traumatized by your healthcare. <laughs> and it's little things too, you know, like, just making things just a little bit more attractive or making things a little bit less repulsive. It's a very yeah. sterile environment. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. One thing that I really liked when, when I was an undergrad here, I worked at the, in the library at the hospital mm-hmm. and there was two locations, one in the children's hospital, one in the, in the adult hospital. And it was really fun. Cause yeah, in the, children's hospital i would typically i would try to make it fun you know i'd wear like fun shirts you know dress up i would always carry around like origami figures that i'd hand out to children it was always fun you know going around giving out free books all this really fun stuff and unfortunately it was a lot harder to translate that in like the general hospital you know there's not as much interest but it's just so much more like you said sterile and just like gray and all this stuff that you like fortunately you get to see that in the children's hospital but it's very different atmosphere in the in like the general hospital mm-hmm. and one it's thing, also hard for, well, for a course. big hospital yeah. to, to be like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna make this environment is you know so beautiful that you know yeah. there's it's hard, of, but yeah. it doesn't mean that there isn't small things that can't be done or even just like, I just feel like sometimes like the attitude in general of like in the children's hospital is like, we're going to try and minimize the trauma of this. Whereas in the adult hospital, it's like, this is going to happen to you. Suck it up. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like it doesn't have to be that way that like, why don't we have adult life specialists? Like almost every kid who is in the hospital for more than two days is going to have a child life specialist come in and try and figure out what can I do to make this hospital stay a little less horrible for you. And I just think that need doesn't disappear when you become an adult. And obviously adults don't want Disney movies and goofiness in the same way a four-year-old is going to respond to that. But I think that this is important that like hospitals and doctors are scary and traumatic and not a fun place to be, but they don't, that doesn't like mean we have to just accept that and be like, there's nothing at all we can do to not minimize. I'm trying to imagine what the, what the thing that you could do is. I feel like I have a really good idea as a trainee, especially. And as a medical student, you have more time than Mm -hmm. any other person on the team. So I think that's a great idea, Abby, like exactly what you said, go into a patient's room when you have downtime and what, is there anything that I can do for you? Like just sitting there and talking to somebody, is there anything I can do to make you more comfortable? Is there anything I can do to make you feel a little bit better? I feel like that's a really good opportunity to use that downtime and see if there is any need that your patient has. I know a lot of patients or stories that you hear on the wards of attendings will be like, oh yeah, my, this patient like loves medical, they love to be with medical students. They know the medical student more than they know me. Yeah. I think that's a really good opportunity for trainees. 
Yeah, I think there's plenty of opportunities. That's a really good one, Maddie. But like, for example, I, I volunteered at both like the like the more adult and then like kid side of the hospital here. It's I really enjoyed it at the kid side of the hospital. You can go and play games with them, watch movies with them. You can have fun with them like the child mm-hmm. life specialist does. But then when I was here in the adult hospital and what I've heard from a lot of my peers is it's a lot of the same thing where they're doing things like cleaning wheelchairs. They're doing things like sitting at a desk. While these are important, there's so many people that are uh, willing to come in. You know, they have to turn down people every year to volunteer here. Use some of those people. You can use your volunteers. Go in and ask them how their days are doing. Provide fun activities for them to do. It is, yes, a less scary, less traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. I think that's super important because if you're having a bad time in the hospital, why would you want to come back? And then you're delaying care and all these other things. So many of the things that adults like, though, are bad for them. That no. the cards. Fair. There should be a deck of yeah, cards. Yeah, like, like child life pr- will provide like procedural support. So you have someone who is like trained of like this procedure is going to happen in this child, and you have this person who is trained on how to comfort the child through the procedure. Love it. But adults still, I like can think of so many times like I had a lumbar puncture once, and like I'm like still afraid of like getting any kind of injection because of how horrible this lumbar puncture was and how scary and bad it was. And, you know, it wouldn't have not been at all scary and not at all painful. But I think about if I had someone in that room whose whole job was to hold my hand, look me in the eye and talk me through it. I think that it would have gone dramatically different. Like it still Mm. wouldn't have been a fun time, but I think that would have been enough that like, I wouldn't be like so freaked out and traumatized by what happened to me. And I just like, and like you said, like it's a small thing. Like I just wanted someone to hold my hand and tell me like, you're doing a good job. But like the operator of that procedure, like the doctor was so like, they had to do the procedure. It wasn't for like a lack of like, like he felt really bad for how horribly this was going, but he couldn't do anything because he had to get it done. And so, I had that experience in an, in a different way where mm-hmm. there was somebody there to like hold my hand when I was getting my IUD placed. And uh-huh. if you've never had an ID, IUD placed, it hurts yeah. really bad. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> and the medical assistant stayed in the room and he just stood next to me while um, the PA and the physician were doing the procedure. And he was talking to me the whole time. And if when he could tell that I would just needed to like take a couple breaths, he like talked me through it and mm-hmm. like. Having, yeah, having that person, that support person to be there, like when he could tell that I was really in pain to like even just put a hand on my shoulder was really helpful. So I totally agree that there should be that support for ho- pe- adults mm-hmm. in the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And Make I, it look like a hamburger joint. That would, could, that could. would work for me. Someone. I kind of laughed when I heard this question because I'm going to be an OBGYN and I don't know if you guys have noticed, but OBGYNs are kind of like obsessed with uteruses and like, like I I'm have a, noticed that. I'm applying to residency and programs will send you little gifts in the mail. So like I have a little uterus pin and a lanyard <laughs> and a sticker that they sent me. Um, so I think it's funny. Like on one hand, I want to like destigmatize like talking about, you know, some of these more taboo topics, but I kind of agree with the commenter that like we don't have to have huge anatomical diagrams on the walls we could have like pretty art and bring out the diagrams when we need to but i just thought it's funny because my mind automatically went to all the uteruses i think it's such a good point i I think it it must be an i'm sure it's an effort to educate people like these are your bits these are the parts of you yeah maybe you're interested in it yeah and i I got maybe a lot of people are i got super like off topic and we really got on my soapbox here but i think it's just like (laughs) This is the point of like, we 
this is like this listener brought up such a good point that it's like we don't always think about how is what we're doing affecting the patient experience and i can totally see how if you're like already embarrassed about being at the doctor for your genitalia and you're in a room just surrounded by detailed large anatomic (laughs) like i can totally now that i think about it see how that would make me feel and so yeah i just think that's a good reminder for us to think about in every way whether that be how we're decorating the space oh wow a cross-section of a penis (laughs) like totally that's not what making, I like look I can at. definitely see how that would have the opposite effect of what you're wanting. So, yeah. what a what a lovely conversation. I know. <laughs> if you agree, listeners, write to us. Yeah, I just wanted to say I feel like sometimes I was harsh to the male commentators. I want to say it's okay if you can't get past the female and you need a male urologist. That is 100% okay and fine. And I I understand that. I think I like would rather see a female gynecologist. So that's not what I'm saying. I think my biggest thing that got me kind of spicy today was that <laughs> I just didn't like the implication that there wasn't any space for her to treat men at all. And that because she is yeah. a female, she is unable to do that empathy. And so I just wanted to make that really clear for yeah. our listeners. That case. is what empathy yeah. is all about. Yeah. Seeing things from the point of view of another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trying Mm -hmm. to teach students to do. And that's what hopefully, uh, I mean, it is a problem in medicine in, in that the trajectory of empathy, the trend of empathy is downward from the beginning of medical school through training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's definitely something that a, a good physician and physician trainee keeps track of and understands and, Mm -hmm. and uh, pays attention to in their own, in their own professional lives. Yeah. And as a qualifier to my statements as well, I totally agree with Abby. Dr. Perlman is incredible, more than capable of treating all the men that she treats. And I actually am interested in urology, too. So as a future potentially female urologist, I want to say that I would also like obviously hope that many men are comfortable receiving my care. And, you know, I'm not saying that you should only be seen by the type of, you know, by the same (laughs) gender doctor. Um, But I understand the the sentiment of wanting that and the comfort that comes with that. So just as, you know, qualifier. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there you go. That is our show. Emma, Maddie, Abby, Jacob. Thank you for joining me on uh, the show today with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. You're welcome. And what kind of obscene plastic model of a reproductive organ would I be (laughs) if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and as I said, YouTube, when I remember to click the button. Our editors are Maddie Walleen and Nick Lind. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use 
But the bottom line is that, for what it's worth, I see you, I know you're out there, I wish I could do more. Maybe I can, in ways that I don't understand yet or know about, but I see you, and I'm glad you're here, and other people are too. 